What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Flip Flop Guy podcast. I'm Andy Mokel, and I'll be your host. Our goal is to have epic conversations with people from all walks of life. There are no talking points that are off the table. It's going to get wild. We hope our guests inspire and motivate you to walk with purpose as we trudge the road of human existence. Enjoy the show. Getting a little panicky. Yep, super nervous. Yeah. How do you feel about that? Say what? How do you feel about that? Does it kind of wear you out, get nervous about doing podcasts? Yeah. Yeah. It really does. And especially now. Especially now yeah. that I have to do it all the time. Yeah, now that you have a podcast. Yeah, now that I have on. a podcast on my own that I have to work on. Mm-hmm. No, I actually really like it. What, I, like, I like it a lot. How have you found it? I mean, how many episodes have you recorded so far? Seven. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Oh, good. So you guys are really getting your foot in the door with it. Yeah, we, we've been rolling pretty good. So yeah. I'm happy with it. And what podcast is that? The Peterson's Hunting Adventures podcast. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun. Yeah. Yeah, I had the opportunity to get on there yesterday. Yeah, you did. It's a good time. That was a really good time. Yeah, I'm was. still jazzed up about that. That conversation <laughs> was awesome. Yeah. That was just fun. Well, and having Draper in it too is like definitely epic. Oh, totally. Draper's the man. He is. He's a great person. He really is. I love Draper. I, I couldn't ask for a better boss. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. It doesn't even seem like he's a boss. Really? You know? Yeah. The buddy. Yeah. More of a buddy. Yeah. Just have fun together. Well, working for Peterson's has got to be pretty fun. Dude, it's so fun. Yeah. Yeah. Dream job. hundred percent. Is it really? Yeah. Yeah. You've gotten to go on like a couple cool hunts and do some pretty interesting things. How's that been? Man, it's been awesome. Honestly, the, uh, the coolest thing was that that blacktail hunt in California was pretty cool. Yeah. That Down was, at Steinbeck? Yeah. That was really slick. Yeah. Uh, I never thought I would hunt deer in a vineyard and I went and hunted deer in a vineyard. Uh-huh. And like <laughs> just giant blacktail running around that taste absolutely amazing. Yeah, and they've got a really good thing going on down there. Yeah. Not only that, they're grapevine fed, so yeah. can't really tasty. Can't really beat that yeah. added flavor to the meat. I'm so bummed that I didn't get to bring a whole ham back to do a flip flop. How come? Just because I had to get it back and I didn't have enough cooler space in the rental car and stuff. I didn't oh. fly a big enough cooler down. And Yeah. Yeah. Those Yeti shoulder bags, the shoulder cooler. Yeah. You fit a leg in that. You fit. I've actually fit three legs in that. Well, I only had one. Apparently, yeah. that's a problem. Apparently, I need to call Yeti back. So. Yeah. Like, hey, give me a bunch of these so I can bring whole legs home. I know, right? Yeah. Like, it's, there's not enough space here, guys. Yeah. Like, Help me on. out. I need some more. <laughs> Let's go, guys. Step it up. For sure. For sure. So, I guess, why don't you tell me who you are? Well, everybody knows who I am. I know, <laughs> but we're still going to do it. All right. I'm Joe Farinato, the associate editor of Peterson's Hunting Magazine. Mm-hmm. Yep. I, uh, born and raised in California, just like yourself. Where at? Um, in San Bernardino County. I was mm. born in Lake Arrowhead. Be- beautiful uh, place. Yep. Grew up uh, up in the mountains above San Bernardino. I mean, the mountains are beautiful. San Bernardino's kind of, yeah. <laughs> um, but lived there a solid majority of my life. Spent a lot of time um, coming up here to Montana. And uh, family had a place up here that just kind of grew this, this love with Montana that I have. And um, just always grew up in the outdoors. I was on horses the uh, before I could walk, like with photos of me just sitting on a horse with my mom before I could even walk and How um, cool. hunting and fishing all the time. We'd, we'd go down to the salt and sea, shoot ducks. 
Um, that's actually kind of an interesting story. The uh, first duck I ever killed is a cinnamon teal. Really? Yeah. Oh, so, wow. So, like, everybody talks about, you know, shooting, like, cinnamon teal and blue wing teal and stuff. But down there, it was, like, that was the norm. Yeah. Like, that's what we were getting coming in. Like, I never shot a greenhead until I moved to Idaho. Really? Yeah. How so, about that? It was crazy. It was completely different. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so grew up in California, went to uh, Boise State for school. Um, and then as soon as I graduated uh, with my journalism degree, I moved to Montana and that's where I've been since. So backing up to living in California and kind of growing up and hunting out there, um, did you ever, were you into the deer hunting scene out there at all or was it mostly foul? Mostly foul. Um, we did a little bit of deer hunting here and there. Uh, it was just kind of harder down there. Like we had some access and had some opportunity to go do it, but never really just got into it full board. Mm -hmm. You know, I played sports a lot of, uh, a lot of high school and middle school and stuff. And that's a so whole bunch of deer season right there. A whole bunch of deer season right yeah. there. So, so we went, um, you know, bird hunting whenever we could. And the majority of big game hunting, actually all the big game hunting that I did, really, besides a few hunts here and there in California, uh, took place in Idaho. I so killed, that's kind of when it took off for you. Yeah. Well, actually, n- not really. Um at 12, I killed my first deer, which was a whitetail in northern Idaho. Uh, uh, just absolute stud buck. Got spoiled. Um, just recently shot mm-hmm. a buck that was bigger than him, and it was a mule deer. Oh, wow. So <laughs> I got spoiled. But killed him when I was 12. Just legal to hunt. And uh, took kind of a hiatus from uh, from big game hunting. And mm-hmm. didn't really chase big game until I moved to Boise again. Okay. So... And then that's kind of where it took off. I just, I was always watching hunting shows going like, I want to go do this. I want to go do this. I want to go do this. Um, went on a couple of different hunts, um, here and there, uh, through college, but really just hit it hard. Started shooting my bow a bunch. I I just wanted to be a bow hunter. And, um, and what made you gravitate more towards archery than rifle hunting? Uh, I think it was just because I was always shooting my bow in the yard in California mm-hmm. and it just made me thoroughly enjoy it. Yeah. Um, like we went and shotguns all the time too. Like I love shooting shotguns, but I just never spent the time behind a rifle to really like kind of garner that appreciation that I had for like the shotgun and the bow. Um, don't get me wrong. I absolutely love hunting with rifles too. Uh, but I just had this appreciation and this desire to be like, I want to be as successful as I can with this bow. Mm-hmm. So, um, and in Idaho, another kicker, one of the reasons why I just like focused on bow hunting was you have to pick between archery and a rifle tag uh, for elk. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I want to hunt elk when they're screaming in my face, so I'm going to be an <laughs> archery hunter. So I uh, I made sure I was uh, picking up my bow all the time and running around chasing elk. And uh, that really just kind of blossomed this desire to be just hunting all the time like i i originally was going to go to school to play football but um kind of gave up on that dream a little sidetrack uh gave up on that dream because i got injured pretty badly my senior year of high school um blew up my shoulder and basically tore my thumb off my right hand Uh, yeah how'd you do that i got caught in a guy's jersey as i was like i did a little swim move through Uh uh-huh and it just caught gotten the caught in the guy's jersey like right next to his pads and And practice or playing playing in a game and uh just caught the jersey pulled through and it just um dislocated my thumb and tore the ucl 
Mm-hmm. I, I think it's the UCL. Um, don't judge me if I get that wrong. Uh, <laughs> haven't talked about it in a long time. But uh, it basically just popped that joint on my thumb. And you can see it's a little wonky still. Yeah. But had to get surgery on it. And it, it was kind of similar to what they say when you, like, uh, pop your Achilles tendon and stuff, how it, like, balls up in your calf and stuff and shoots up. I guess that uh, UCL, that ligament, um, was like all the way up, like kind of towards my wrist, mm-hmm. just balled up. So the, the surgeon said they usually make, you know, just a, you can't even see the incision, but you could see it here. Like I have an inch incision cause they had to cut up a little further and oh, wow. <laughs> pull the ligament back down. Um, but then I, uh, I still played all season with my thumb taped to my hand and in the last game, the play before halftime, I, uh, I got a sack on the quarterback and hit the ground and a bunch of guys landed on top of me and my hat I had my shoulder out kind of like I was on my side under the under the quarterback mm-hmm. and a bunch of guys landed on top of me and I dislocated my shoulder um tore my labrum and my rotator cuff and uh kind of sheared off the front part of the socket holy shit yeah and so I had to get surgery for that so I have a couple of pins Ugh. in my shoulder and uh tore up my ligaments so I had to get those all repaired which they repaired with paracord yeah yeah the doctor was telling me about it after the surgery he's like yeah so we use paracord to um bring like your labrum and your rotator cuff back together and I'm thinking in my head like some special medical type of paracord right and yeah shows me pictures from the surgery and actually like you know multicolored paracord and I was just like what it's like that's in my arm <laughs> like, that's weird <laughs> yeah. okay but uh but no so I I changed paths from um, playing football in college because I wanted to join the military. Mm-hmm. And um, long story short, I ended up getting denied from the military for medical reasons because of those injuries. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was kind of right in that like downsizing time when um, they were making a bunch of cuts under Obama. Yeah. And just couldn't get in. They didn't want to work with waivers or anything. And uh, I was really kind of bummed out about it because I was focusing so much. Like that was where all my energy was going um and uh I was just kind of lost like just trying to figure out I was like well what, what am I going to do now and I actually ended up meeting Mike Scoby mm-hmm. and uh he was like well change your uh change your major to journalism come intern for me and uh we'll we'll see if you like it so how'd you end up meeting Mike I was at the NRA um uh annual meetings and he was there, obviously, he was the editor-in-chief of Peterson's Hunting at the time. Mm-hmm. And um, he was there, and a family friend, Darren Lasort, we uh, uh, went and met up with him at a bar. And he introduced me, and Mike and I just got talking, and we kind of hit it off. And he's like, yeah, come work for me. Really? Yeah. How cool like, is that? Because yeah. so like, Mike's kind of become a significant role model in your life. 100%. Yeah, you know, he's, a, he's helped a, me a lot. A really big mentor for you. So Yeah, big time. That's cool. It was really cool. And after that conversation in that bar, I, I literally went back to the hotel room. And my brother was there too. And he'll he'll tell you this. He'll confirm this story. I got on my computer that night because it was still during the school year when we were there. And I got on my computer that night, um, declared a major change that night like went back to the hotel really changed my major really yeah right there in the hotel How room. cool yeah and then uh yeah the rest is history and then i i went and worked for him for a little bit and uh it didn't work out right away that i all right interned for him it didn't work out right away that after college i got a job 
in the in the industry but uh just kind of kept grinding kind of working on my writing and stuff and uh bounced around work construction up in whitefish and um ended up getting a position at meat eater mm-hmm. and then which at the time which was a good learning experience and stuff and i didn't really quite fit in with the culture there and uh wanted something different and peterson's was always in the back of my head it's like that's where i wanted to be absolutely and uh last <clears throat> year david draper calls me up and he's like we have an open position would you like to apply and i'm like hell yeah Carol, yes, I yeah, would. Like I, I am all about that. One hundred percent. So, before we dive into that, what at Meteor you worked there? What was your job there? What were you doing there? So I kind of bounced around a little bit. I I moved from Whitefish to down to Bozeman, um, and that was like right a, around the time we met for the first time. Yeah, pretty pretty close. I moved from Whitefish down here, and um, it was like a temporary position with meat eater like ben o'brien called me up he's like hey we have this like temporary project that we're working on would you like to take it on like we'll pay this much whatnot it was basically like an internship mm-hmm. you know it's like you'll get to learn and and try some stuff you know and if it works out we know we might have a full-time position for you at the end of it so yeah. took the big risk moved out of a, a good solid paying job to an internship salary <laughs> um how'd that feel like well Cause I know that's, that's risk, man. And, and you never know risk can come with great reward or no reward at all. Exactly. So I know for a lot of people when they jump into that and they take that risk when they're really trying to get into something that they love and that they're passionate about, there's like a lot of fear involved. There's a whole plethora of emotions that we go through as humans making that jump. What was that like for you? Dude, it was nerve wracking. It was uh really nerve wracking cause I was was working in a very solid job. I was actually working for my, my grandparents, uh, building business up there in whitefish and like making decent ish money, not great money, but, uh, but good enough money, make a good comfortable living, but it, it just wasn't something I wanted to do. And you were passionate about it. Yeah. I wasn't passionate about it at all. And I knew I wanted to be hunting more and I wanted to be using, uh, I don't know. I don't think I'm like a very talented writer, but I wanted to use my skills to, you know, communicate with people and, and spread a, a knowledge about what we do. Mm-hmm. And I talked to my then fiance, now wife about it. And she was like, you're not happy with this. Like if, if you want to go take that job, like do it. Mm-hmm. I was like, all right, cool. If, as long as you're on board, like I'm on board, like let's make that happen. And so like, I was nervous. Like yeah. I was really nervous. Cause I was like, we're moving to a, the most expensive part of the state <laughs> with really is. little to no money making like no little money. Amount. Yeah. And, um, it was nerve wracking, but, uh, and so in that transition and she gave you the seal of approval, she was like, okay, you know, which is, that's awesome of a spouse to be able to do, yeah. and, you know, and her as well, understanding the risk and everything involved with it and still being supportive of it. Um, was that difficult walking away from a family run business and maybe like a tradition and things going on there? Oh yeah. Super, super difficult. But, um, cause your grandfather's kind of been a pinnacle for you in in a lot of your hunting life and your aspirations kind of of the hunter that you want to be and some of the things you want to hunt and what you want to do and achieve in your hunting career 100 percent, yeah my my grandpa kind of got me into hunting and has been uh very helpful along the way i've gone on a lot of trips with him um I, i shot my first pheasant with him when i was 
10 years old. Uh, he gave me my first shotgun, my first rifle, all that type of stuff. And he has the grand slam. Good old machine. grandfathers, man. That's dude, that's what it's all yeah, about. And he's got a, you said he's got a slam and his yep. slam is number 542, I want to say. So he completed it, you know, relatively early on. Oh yeah. He did a good job at it too. I, three out of his four sheep are, are Boone and Crockett Rams. That's not bad. So it's a really really awesome sheep and i grew up staring at that and that's given me bad sheep fever (laughs) but uh (laughs) to to your point he has been a a very instrumental and um uh huge mentor in my hunting life and he's also been very successful my grandpa has a a awesome success story he came over from greece when he was eight years old and uh, from nazi occupied greece Mm mm-hmm uh, when he was eight years old, he saw his. I mean, I have pictures of what it looked yeah. like back then. I have a pretty, f- pretty decent understanding of what it was going on when it w- was uh, occupied. And yeah, man, it was. I bad. mean, it was absolutely insane. It was total crazy times. Yeah. Everything that People was going getting on. Shot in the streets. Well, not only that, but you know, the education of youth and what they needed to do and how the youth needed to live and everything like that. So I, you know, I understand that to a to a degree of you know what that kind of, sort of had to be like for him and i guess would be his parents and your great grandparents yeah it was it was gnarly for him but uh they they had a awesome kind of out my great grandma was a, a us citizen mm-hmm. and was able to get the family out of greece and they came over here and my great grandpa worked his butt off just you know scratching a living out of flipping burgers type of stuff mm-hmm. and was that here in montana or no it was uh on the east coast in okay. maine so okay. they came in through ellis island and lived in maine for a while and um at that time uh, the the restaurant that my great grandfather was working for the owner of that said i'm i'm moving to california i'm moving to san Bernardino." and he was like you guys could come with me if you want and they all packed up in this car and actually a really cool thing. My grandpa found this old, just dilapidated 410 in the woods in Maine uh-huh. and took it with him to California. No way. Yeah, And it, he still has it to this That's day. It's just so beat cool. up. Yeah. Um, I long for that day. Like, right. I can't remember. It was a few years back, but somebody found a lever action that was placed against a tree. Um, and I can't remember where they found it. It was somewhere up in this general vicinity. That's cool. And, uh, it had apparently been against that tree for, you know, over 150 years or a hundred years, something like that. Wow. I can't remember that. I'll have to look it up, dude. But I remember reading the story when it came out and I was just like blown away. How many, how many rifles or firearms are left sitting somewhere where someone like that was hunting or riding a horse and traveling, you know, who knows what, what time it was. You know, and they put their rifle down and something happened and they had to walk away and then they walked back and then they could never find exactly where it was. Yeah. You know, because I mean, I know it happens to me with my pack. Yeah. You know, I lose my pack all the time. I've searched for my boots or something. Frantically searching for my pack before. Just like, where is it? Yeah. Yeah. But, uh. But only I, mean, I that would be so cool to find something like that. Yeah. And like looking at that in his like little gun display cabinet is pretty darn cool. Yeah. But uh they moved to San Bernardino, they all loaded up um in the car, went to San Bernardino, California, and um my grandpa just 
busted his ass, worked super hard and, and ended up building a really successful business for himself. Mm-hmm. So, and that's that development business and, and building and home building business. And so I was kind of just trying to honor that legacy and working for him and stuff. But I think he knew I wasn't passionate about it and, you know, family when you work with family, you always butt heads in, in some way or another, right? Yeah. Like, you just don't get along, you know. You, if you try and take over a role, it, it uh, doesn't always work out, you know, because he's in his 80s now. So I was just trying to, you know, spearhead it for him, but he's just not ready to give it up. So it was causing some tensions and stuff, and and I just wasn't passionate about it. So taking that leap, like, he at first when I left, he was like, you're going to fail type of stuff. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's not what you should do. This is definitely the better spot. Like you need to be here for family and whatnot. Like if it's not for the family, like you're going to fail type of stuff. And I was like, no, I'm going to go forge my own path. Like, thanks, but no thanks. And yeah. See you later. It's like, and now that he sees that I'm semi successful in it and forging my own path, he's, you know, couldn't be proud more of proud. you. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, in the beginning, it was a little bit disappointment walking away from exactly. the family shelter. A little rocky, little yeah. rocky, but uh, it worked out in the end, and uh, I couldn't be happier with where it's taking me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I really appreciate the, the mentorship and stuff, but uh, I think I found my, my niche and I'm going to stick with it. Yeah. So, Keep how rolling. long were you at Mediator for before you transitioned over to Peterson's? I was there for just over two years, yeah. two and a half years. And right in there. there's just a fun learning process. It yeah. sure it helped you get your foot in the door, maybe a little, make a little name for yourself, yep. you know, more so than, you know, just floating around in the wings. Yeah, exactly. I know. got to, I got to do some writing, got to do some editing, uh, do a little bit of work on both ends. You know, I got to learn the, the podcast atmosphere and the, the TV atmosphere and all that stuff. And so you and Ben kind of became relatively close through this process as yeah, well. Yeah. Right? Ben O'Brien. I'm still super close to Ben O'Brien. Um, great friend uh he he mentored me a lot as well like he'd uh, give me pointers here and there and whatnot and really appreciative to to all the the learning experience that i had there but uh in the end it just you know wasn't the right fit and i was just yeah, that happens man that's just part of business else. and growth as a human being i mean yeah definitely you're 26 yep 26 you're 26 so you know 24 25 26 even yeah. you know 23 24 25 26 is such a monumental growth spurt for anybody emotionally and mentally yeah definitely and uh where we come out of that you know really kind of dictates what the rest of our life kind of is going to look like i always try to tell people like because i was under the impression when i was young like you got to have it figured out by the time you're 25 and have a career and everything going and i was under the same you know what i mean like yeah and i was fully sold and and i was talking to my uncle and uh, he's lived the most insane life that you could ever imagine. I was 29 years old, talking to my uncle, telling him how my life is is done, and I, I don't know what I'm going to do. And you know, I guess I'm just going to have the the house with the white picket fence, and you know, whatever the car in the driveway, and yep. just work my nine to five job. And you know, that's that's the extent of my life. And he was like, no. my life didn't even start until it was 30. Oh, 100%. And that changed my entire perspective. And you're like, I don't have to be stuck in this. I don't have to do this? This rut, this Wait, monotonous lifestyle. Why am I even convinced that this is what I need to be doing? And then, you know, lo and behold, I am yeah. where I am today. But 
social norms, man. Yeah. Social norms. Like social construct so of the American yeah. dream. Yep, exactly. There, it, there's such a difference between the American dream that's that's packaged and sold to us than what you can actually achieve pursuing the, the true the Ameri- American yeah. dream of opportunity. Yes. The opportunity, opportunity to, to forge your path. Yeah. 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 And, and willingness to fail and get back up and continue to go. Well, that, that's one thing that I, I respect more than anything about my grandpa is his um, ideals for the American dream and the way that he pursued it. Mm-hmm. He was like, I don't have any money, but I'm going to risk everything I have. I'm going to build this business mm-hmm. and I'm going to be successful. He fell on his face multiple times, you know, declared bankruptcy, all that jazz. Like, yeah, failure. Failure breeds success. Yeah. Right, like 100 percent and he just kept grinding yeah but you know he was like I'm well not and that's part up. of it though that's part of the reason why specific people will succeed yeah is because when they fail it's not the end of the world they don't throw the towel and give yeah. up and just like let's keep going okay what do i have to do next in yeah. order to continue going on the path that i'm going on yeah you know that, that's what the it's all mindset man mm-hmm. in, in that case and that's one thing I really try and stick to is with anything I'm doing, I'm like, you know, get a bad note from the boss or something. You, you get yelled at one day. You make a little mess up at work. It's like, damn, fuck that up. Yeah. Oops. Oops. Shit. Brush it off. Don't make that mistake again. What Keep can I do to be forward. better? Yep. Yeah. Exactly. So that's just one of the biggest things for me, man. I just just keep grinding with it and will always do that just because I know – what's been in like my family heritage of everybody just kind of pushing forward Mm -hmm. and that kind of helps keep you motivated too huh oh 100 percent. yeah yeah it's like find that success because i mean like i'm not going to measure my success i think in life off of the dollar sign Mm -hmm. it'll be more so and like my kids in the future i want them to measure success off of how full of a life that they live Mm -hmm. i mean rather than you know obviously make a good living comfortable living take care of your family whatnot but you don't need to go make billions of dollars to be successful in my book i'm uh, if i live a full life experience and that's kind of what it's all about yeah you know is because i'm not rich by any means whatsoever and what i've found is is living a full life and full to the potential that i want has rewarded me so much happiness and freedom from every thing else and all of the daily bullshit you oh, know what i mean 100 percent, man 100 percent. i i completely agree with you there um and i mean like peterson's isn't the highest paying job in the world but i feel like a rich man with the experiences that i mm-hmm. get to get to have through it it's fulfilling super fulfilling like every time we turn a magazine in i feel super fulfilled super successful i'm just like that that's cool. Yeah. And then like when you get that magazine back, like once it's done at the printer, you're just like, and you get to look at it. Yeah. It's like, damn, I made that. And it's like, I had all these experiences. It's super cool. And like, of course we do all the digital stuff, but I, I don't think there's anything to be, um, that can compare to mm-hmm. a tangible, like physical magazine or something, book or something. to be more proud of. Yeah. hundred yeah. percent. I just absolutely love it, man. It's so cool. Yeah. So you transitioned out of Meat Eater. Yep. Into Peterson's. I didn't I didn't even tell you like fully oh. what I did at Meat Eater. Yeah, like, so let's keep going with Meat Eater. Yeah. Um keep so going on rabbit holes though. It's yeah, good. I know. They're good rabbit holes. I, I like love them. rabbit holes. Yeah. Um but no, we uh I started there on this um kind of temporary project. Mm-hmm. And um 
did that and just worked really hard and kept grinding and kept grinding. And when the end of that uh, term came up, uh, I was like, well, am I going to have a job or I'm going to leave? And they offered me a job. So I stayed and I was the community coordinator. And basically what I did, like I answered all the emails. So like any questions people had about the show, about the podcast or any just like general hunting questions that came into the meat eater email, like I was the guy answering them. Mm -hmm. So I was always the dude who would talk to everybody and answer their questions and give them hunting advice and whatnot. And that kind of blossomed into, uh, and I did some writing in there as well. And that blossomed into an assistant editor role, Mm -hmm. which is very similar to this role that I'm doing now but uh uh the associate editor position is definitely a little more um higher level so i'm very much more um in depth with all the the editorial process you know assigning articles that that different thing but yeah did that assistant editor job for a while uh did a lot more writing uh and then draper gave me a call and i was like ooh speaking my language draper hey (laughs) Hey, buddy how's it going And I had heard a lot about Draper from uh, mutual friends in the industry and stuff. I'd never met him. I actually didn't meet him until like seven months working for him. Really? Yeah, with with COVID oh, and funny. everything. Like we talked on the phone every day, but uh, drove to his house to go pheasant hunting with him last December. That was the first time I met him. So how much fun was that? It was awesome. Was it? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, oh man, I felt like we know each other, but this is the first time I've ever met you. Mm-hmm. Like it's crazy. But, uh, but yeah, so that, that was kind of my, my term at meat eater there, did a lot of that and moved on to Peterson's where I couldn't be happier with the position. Yeah. 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 And like you said, you got to go on some pheasant hunts. You've gone on the deer hunt. Yeah. Gone on the deer hunt, went on a couple of deer hunts last year, uh, doing, uh, some cat hunts, piles of cats hunt, cat hunts. Yeah. But that's not like technically for Peterson's. That's just because that's just experience. I got got buddies here in town that we just like torturing ourselves and running around the snowy mountains. So Mm -hmm. that's cool, man. It's fun. So with Peterson's kind of what, what do you, what do you foresee? Like what, how are you gelling into the position? Do you have aspirations for further growth within the company and oh 100 um i feel like i've kind of molded into the position really well i feel like i fit in uh i thoroughly enjoy everybody at osg osg is outdoor sportsman group Uh um it's the the larger conglomerate that owns peterson's hunting and a bunch of different titles uh underneath that banner guns and ammo um game and fish titles like that yeah and um absolutely love all the people there like i've had a great time working with them going to events with them shooting a lot of guns uh i guess growth within the company i I would love to move up the editorial ladder at some point you know move up to that uh, managing editor editor in chief role Mm -hmm. at some point that's kind of the the dream there um but yeah just kind of keep pushing up the levels and keep grinding keep working my way up and uh get get to that editor-in-chief position or even move up to the pub- publisher position and uh, work more on the, the back end of things instead of being, you know, um, in-depth on all the edit stuff, working, you know, ad sales and pitching the magazine and really helping the brand grow. Mm-hmm. So, Do you at all have, like, worry or fear of, I mean, I know how, like, digital age and, you know, internet has kind of 
crushed newspapers and you know publications and stuff like that does that at all like concern you or worry you or do you think that we're kind of at a stagger point right now where or a plateau not a stagger excuse me um where it's just kind of in, in balance and it's probably magazines will stick around mm-hmm. um maybe not as high volume as they used to be but yeah. they'll stick around and and you know they're kind of at a point where they just float right across um i think we're at a plateau right now and you know people have been saying prince dead for the last 20 years right? i don't think that it is years. man i think that uh magazines will make a comeback i think that printed press will make a comeback i do too i really do so i think we're at a plateau right now like things have kind of leveled off um our numbers are actually going up exponentially right now that which makes is, sense to which me which is really good to see um, people are really searching for that tangible asset. And with mm-hmm. some of our major competitors cutting back on printing and stuff like that, mm-hmm. uh, it seems like it's driven people to want to just keep getting that magazine. Well, that, and I think also there's a little bit more, um, substance and validity to me behind something that's behind printed, printed pl- product. Yeah. Printed yeah. and published. I completely agree. And I've, I've heard that sentiment from a lot of different people from, from readers. Even mm-hmm. they just like having that. They trust it a little bit more. I, I and, mean, when I get an email from a company that's like, blah, 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 you know, read this article that we did. Mm-hmm. You're like, no, I'm good. I'm not really likely to do that. Yeah. Just, and it doesn't matter who it is, how knowledgeable or how in, in knowledgeable mm-hmm. they are in my perspective, but I just am way more reluctant. I don't really care. And when something is in a magazine, I'm way more likely to pick that up, read it and be a lot more interested in it. So, so I think a lot of that comes from in this digital world. It's so easy to push out content. Well, it's It's easy to push out content, something and push it out, put a clickbaity title on it. Not only that, but I think that also it's, in the last five years, it's gotten so watered down with so much bullshit and so many inexperienced, not, and I'm not trying to, I'm not calling out names or knocking on anyone individually, but like there's so much stuff that's getting watered down because X, Y, and Z has, you know, X, Y, and Z. We're going to give them this opportunity, even though maybe they have a year of hunting experience under the belt, Exactly. two years of hunting experience under the belt. Oh, we're going to give them a bow. We're going to give them a rifle. You know, we're going to give them this or that or whatever. And they have no legitimate experience with conservation, with hunter's education, with carrying along the tradition or the message of hunting. Um, But yet all of a sudden they become a trusted ambassador for the sport, which is for the sport, which it is like, sure, maybe it looks good, you know, looks good on Instagram, but it it looks looks bad everywhere else, you know, and, and, and I think too, that, that what that's really done is pissed off a lot of lifers yeah and a lot of people have dedicated their heart and soul into an industry trying to keep the foundation and structure Mm -hmm. from you know not falling apart yeah um well you know these you know false idols i guess would be the best way to put it um get built into you know whatever it is they're being built into you know just because they're able to grab the reader and it and originally i would say three years ago i wouldn't even really be saying that it's uh you know um you know two gender issue yeah three years ago i would say oh it's just chicks with tits and tight asses that they're getting you know and and then it's grown out of the sexualization of women and 
in order to push sales and and make money into you know such a larger scaled thing with you know male and females yeah in my opinion it's no, all just my opinion no i i completely agree with you there but uh that that's one reason i think people really trust that that print atmosphere because like <coughs> it takes a lot of time and a lot of work to put a magazine out mm-hmm. like it it's no small task like we got a we got to grind to get that content out the door and and the quality of content that comes out is in my opinion much 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 higher than anything you read online yeah like you're, you're gonna and and the readers think so too like they trust the things we're saying like they really really trust it so mm-hmm. so we uh we work really hard to make sure we we keep that and i think that's one reason why people are kind of uh reverting back to it and honestly i think the the journalistic practices that come with making a print magazine mm-hmm. are much better like you put a lot more time and effort into it and it's like, yeah, the, the digital side of things is good, but especially in our space, I've noticed this recently, uh, especially in the past couple of days here, um, you know, they'll, they'll grab a story, they'll just throw something online and, uh, automatically throw up this clickbaity title and whatnot and make people want to click on it. And, uh, the story's not true. The story's not complete. They haven't tracked down what the story is yet. Yeah. They just want to be the first one to post it so they get clicks. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then people see right through that and like this is bullshit and exit the page. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's there's no actual good journalistic practices happening. Mm-hmm. You know, which is a bummer. Yeah. In in my opinion, I just absolutely And I don't have any journalism that. talents and that's why I don't ever submit articles to any magazines. <laughs> no, hey, if you want to submit some to me, I'll I'll read them. I'll no, read them no, all no. the time. <laughs> but but no, it, it's a bummer seeing that and honestly, I think people are going to go back to print magazines going like, "Hey, we want something we can trust." Mm-hmm. You know, and and I hear that all the time from uh manufacturers and stuff in our space. Like they're like, "Yeah, we want to be um in print because that's the stuff that people actually trust. Like we may not have a million followers on Instagram, yeah. but Instagram, like people, somebody scrolling through Instagram doesn't see a post about an ad and go like, Oh yeah, I'm going to go buy that. Well, not only that, you know what I mean? People scrolling through Instagram or scrolling through Instagram and double tapping. There's now like really, I, I don't, think there's much further interaction than that there really isn't you might get yeah. some comments here and there yeah, people unless might it, jump on and comment but yeah unless they're a fan of the product yeah you nobody's know. nobody's really reading the captions and stuff like especially if you put a lengthy caption like we're trying to figure out the instagram game because i do think it is important to be like a true multimedia absolutely and, and have um, diversified yeah be be diverse in the in the platforms so i'm i'm studying instagram a lot and it's like the instagram algorithm it's like your post will perform much better if you only have like a one line caption mm-hmm. it's like or it's if like, you don't tag anyone yeah exactly or if you know like i know and this is just speaking off my and i and i've watched this all the time when i'm posting flip-flop posts about mm-hmm. sauce selling sauce anytime i make a post where i'm like hey sauce is back in stock or sauce mm-hmm. is for sale go to www whatever um the post will gain zero traction. Yeah. It won't show up in anyone's feed. Yep. It's completely muted. And that's all their algorithms shutting anything down. 100%. That no one's paying for. 
Yeah. You know. Exactly. So if it's not paid for, it's not getting promoted. It's really interesting yeah. the way that works. Yeah. Um, which is a pain in my ass. Pain in mind. Trying too. to trying to figure out that. Yeah, we're yeah. in the same boat trying to figure out how to grow our brands and and stuff in this digital world, and it's tough. But it's like our magazine. I think uh, I have like over three million unique readers. That's mm-hmm. what our our uh, whole whole ad deck says, which is really impressive to me that we can circulate that much readership. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, and people get to see everything that happens. And and not to mention, like, you know, we have some really trusted names on our masthead, you know, going back to Jack O'Connor. Yeah. So, and I mean, Jack O'Connor is like an idol of, of the hunting world. Big time. Like, even the guys at Meat Eater talk about Jack O'Connor all the time. Mm-hmm. You know what magazine he wrote for? Peterson's Hunting. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> it's like, all right, yeah, I'll be on that masthead too. That's pretty cool. Yeah, put me up there. Yeah. So, I don't know. I I really do think that we're going to see a big resurgence. So, going back to your plateau conversation. I think we're at a plateau right now and we're starting to see a little bit of 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 rise from it, but I do think we're going to see a lot of growth coming back as people um continue to realize that they can't necessarily trust the uh um atmosphere of the digital space. Yeah. So, that's my opinion. <clears throat> yeah, I agree. Yeah. Definitely. Another agree. rabbit hole. Yeah, right. <laughs> Where'd we divert from? I don't know. I don't either. Oh, well. We keep going. Yeah, we'll just keep going. Yeah. Just keep talking about hunting and mm-hmm. magazines and stuff. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's it's an interesting world, man. And and uh, it's been pretty neat to know you from when we met and you were at Meat Eater to, you know, talking to you when you were switching over and going into Peterson's, I remember when I, when you called me and we were talking about it, you were, I was driving from Bozeman to, I don't know, somewhere. I think you were going to California. Probably driving back to California. Yeah. I remember exactly where I was. I was, you know, on, uh, on that strip between Pocatello and. Yeah. On the 15 between Pocatello and, uh, like Salt Lake there. No, 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 no. Going, I was going West towards jackpot. What is that? Twin Falls. Oh yeah. Twin Falls. Yep. Yeah. Right. I always get Twin Falls and Idaho Falls mixed up. You're like, which one is it? Yeah, I always get them both mixed yeah. up. But I remember talking to you about it and how pumped you were and how excited you were and, you know, everything that was going on. Yeah. And, you know, so you got married. When when was all that happening in, in all of this? I got married the day after I got offered the job at Peterson's. Yeah. yeah. And Mike was? Mike was the officiant. Yeah. So like he full got to marry circle. Us. Yeah. yeah. Full circle got Mike's Scobie to marry us, which, uh, which that's pretty cool, man. It is pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And he gave us a warranty too. He's like, you have a three year warranty, so you can have your money back if it doesn't last three years. <laughs> that's so funny. <laughs> yeah. He's a funny guy. He is. I've only met him twice. I've yeah. only gotten to hang out with him twice. And he's a goofball. He's, he's just such a nice guy and he's got the most mellow tone voice. You know what I mean? Like just, Oh yeah. Yeah. You're so, so monotone about a lot of things. And you're just like, but you, it's mellow though. Say? I mean, I, I, yeah. I hate to call it monotone, but like, I mean, yeah, you could say that, but like, it's, he's just so like, he's so mellow yeah. about everything. It's not monotone in the way that like you would think of it like as being boring yeah. or something. Yeah. It's just, it's so <clears throat> mellow and like, he'll say stuff that just catches you off guard and you're like, what? Wait, what? Yeah. Like, where, where'd that come from? <laughs> like, yeah. what'd you just say? What just happened? And that happens frequently. Yeah. Um, completely, com- 
it's awesome. But uh, he's been a great mentor in, in my hunting history too. So I got to, I've been able to go on t- several hunts with him and, and just sitting and talking with him, like learning about his hunts and his experiences and, you know, living in Africa for a while and, and stuff like that. It really has helped kind of build an understanding of the sport more so mm-hmm. for me, which is absolutely great. And I just kind of cling to those people. Like people have just like these extreme life experiences and just like this wealth of knowledge. I'm just like, yeah, I'll go over there. Yeah. You know, it's like, there's a lot of people in our space who, you know, are, are really good and co- at going out and killing a deer. Mm-hmm. It's like, yep, yeah, cool. You go kill a deer. Sweet. What else do you do? Oh, I just deer hunt. That's it. It's like, okay. It's like, I understand that you're an expert at killing a deer, but I wouldn't call you like an expert at hunting. You know what I mean? Because I, it's a lot more species. There's than a that. lot more species. And like, you know, the, the Jim Shockies of the world, the Craig Boddington's, I mean, Craig Boddington has killed probably more animals than anyone that's alive right now. Yeah. That's alive right now. It's just absolutely insane. Multiple elephants. Like the dude is, Oh yeah. Yeah. Insane. And he's still getting after it. He climbed up the Absarokas last year and killed a mountain goat. Yeah. After waiting 35 years to draw a tag. But he got it. But he got it, and he went up and got it done. Yeah. It's like, that is awesome. So It's passion. So so those people where I'm just like, I don't want to learn about just, like, killing a deer. It's like, I want to be so well-versed in hunting um, that I just, I don't know, that I could be a wealth of knowledge to people in the future and be mm-hmm. a mentor to people. And uh, I think that's one of the biggest problems with hunters coming in to the sport today is, like, uh, people are like, yeah, just go do it. Yeah, just go do it go do it, go out there and try and shoot something. Yeah. And I really think like everybody needs to try and find a mentor. Mm-hmm. Like I, I love people coming into the sport, but I hate people just running around like slinging lead at stuff. Yeah. Wounding things and not really understanding fully. Well, um, not that right there is kind of a, a big difficulty that I think that we're facing as hunters with the influx of so many new people getting into hunting in the last five years. It's like, we have so many one and two year hunters that have no mentors and they're going out in the woods by themselves. They don't really know what they're doing. They don't know how to skin or gut. Um, they don't know how to, you know, bone something out. They're just not really prepared. They have an idea and a vision in their mind of what it looks like yeah. and how glorious it is. And they want to achieve that. And then once they achieve the kill, you know, they're kind of lost. Yeah. They just kind of don't know what to do, but also getting into that, like, you know, they're missing their shot process. They're missing, you know, they're, they're, you know, whether it's with a rifle or with a bow, um, they're wounding animals and they're wounding a lot of animals, you know, and, but nobody will talk about it. Nobody wants to be like, Oh, I wounded an animal. So I went and shot another one or, you know, Oh, I I shot this deer and the arrow went through it and hit a deer behind it. You know, they're not, talking about these kinds of things Mm -hmm. and the reason why is because they're committing game violations so no one wants to admit to it but if they had a mentor and someone that was out there helping them you know and and then you look around and you look at the mentorships that are being offered to folks and the mentorships that are being offered to folks are um come to our one week academy and we're going to go do x y and z and teach you how to be a better hunter yep. you know and they're paying 2500 bucks or they're paying a thousand bucks or 500 bucks you know for these experiences where they're supposed to be learning but they're really they're not learning and they're paying these people to be a mentor for a week mm-hmm. you know and i think as hunters 
it's almost our duty to be able to go out and mentor new hunters yeah. and take them in the field and be like, this is a deer track. That's a pig track. That's an elk track. You know yep. what I mean? And this is, you know, this animal's shit and this is this animal's scat. And, yeah. you know, this is what a bear track looks like. This is what a wolf track looks like. Mm-hmm. You know, this, this is, is this is how you move through the woods. This yeah. is how you be respectful to other hunters. This is how you do this. Yeah, yeah. totally. Because you run in and, dude, you run into some other first time hunters in the field and they don't know what they're doing. No, not at they, all. They, and I'm not trying to knock on for because some guys do, you know, some guys do, but just listening to a podcast and going out in the field and having gone work. through a hunter's education, just watching a TV show or reading an article online. Yeah. Doesn't do it. And and don't get me wrong. Like that can offer some great information, you know, yeah. like re- reading Peterson's hunting, like listening to Craig Boddington's or reading Craig Boddington's words. Yeah. That, that offers some great information. It does. But nothing is going to replace the fact of somebody being in the field with you, talking you through it, Absolutely. showing you your process. People wounding stuff and going and shooting another one, like it's not illegal in Montana. Yeah. Um, but it is one of my wife's biggest pet peeves. It's a big pet peeve of mine. It's a huge pet peeve of Mike Scobie. Mike Scobie is like, you draw blood, it's your animal, it's done. He's mm-hmm. very much the African mindset. Like... He was a, um assistant PH over there for a while or, or just worked with a PH. And uh, he is, like, very adamant. It's like, if you shoot something, that's your animal. Yeah. Like, you know, if you draw blood, cut your tag. Yeah. And, and like, I, I'm in the same mindset. I'm like, it's hard sometimes. It's like, man, I want to keep hunting. It's like, I want to have that success. But, you know, it has driven me to do everything I possibly can to mitigate any sort of wound loss. Mm-hmm. Like I wounded one bull and it was just the, the worst luck I possibly could have. I had an arrow deflect off of a, a rib on a quartering away shot and the arrow just kind of kicked down the same side and never went into the body cavity. Mm-hmm. And like, I wanted to keep hunting so bad, but I was in that mindset of that's my bull. I was like, I kept hunting for that bull. I kept looking for him. If I could get another arrow in him, hunt a hundred percent. But, but yeah, I wasn't gonna, um, keep hunting and go shoot something else. I just, yeah, it, it bugged me. Yeah. So, and, and I think, uh, if we get more people out mentoring people and it's, I would say it's, um, less of a duty to new hunters for existing hunters to, to mentor them. But I think it's a duty as existing hunters to mentor the new hunters to respect the sport. You know, you do it as your duty towards the sport. You do it as your duty towards the animals, mm-hmm. you know, um, because it's a heritage. Yeah, it's a heritage and you need to pass it on properly because there's this big movement right now of, yeah, let's just go out and shoot stuff. Oh, it tastes great. Awesome. Yeah, I got good, clean, fresh meat and whatnot, mm-hmm. which you do. You get some great meat from it. But we also really need to uh, focus on the fact that uh, a lot of people hunt for um a trophy beyond the meat, you know, whether that's horns was, whether that's experience, um, every, everything you do is going to be for a trophy. It's like nobody really, the meat is a trophy. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's yeah. like wherever you go, you're, you're hunting for a trophy. Yeah. You know? And, and like if, if you were just a true meat hunter, you know, especially in Montana here, buy your seven doe tags in this region, go out, shoot a bunch of whitetail does, um, toss them in the, toss them in the freezer and you're good to go for the year. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's kind of my opinion on that. Yeah. 
Completely. Um, so you've been with Peterson's for a while. You're having a great time with that. You also kind of have this fire burning inside of you, inside of you, which is the fire of getting into sheep hunting. Yep. And and really getting on your first sheep hunt and experiencing that. So let's talk about that for a little bit before we wrap up. Yeah, man. I I just have such a drive to to go into the high mountains, chase sheep. I think sheep have to me this just amazing allure of being just this mountain monarch. You know, they live in just these completely inhospitable places, grow these crazy horns out of their head. And they just thrive, you know, they thrive up in these most terrifying places you can go, mm-hmm. you know, um, like especially stone sheep and doll sheep and stuff. It's like you go up those mountains, it's, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely crazy. And I've been fortunate enough. I went and hunted Audad. A lot of people call it the poor man sheep hunt. Mm-hmm. And I, <laughs> I got to do it in a, in a way that, uh, was like a sheep hunt. I, packed up on top of Chinati Peak, stayed up there for a few days, ended up killing a really good ram and uh, really kind of got to experience that full full effect of a sheep hunt and stuff. And um, growing up, listening to the stories of my grandpa telling his his encounters in Alaska, you know, hiking into this crazy backcountry area, you know, stepping on grizzly bears and um, hiking these gnarly ridges, climbing over or walking across glaciers and stuff. It's just like, I, I build this image in my mind of just mm. the ultimate adventure mm-hmm. and that's what I want to go do. I just, it, it bugs me that I haven't done it yet. Uh-huh. I'm just like, I need to go do it. So every year I'm looking for a way to, even if I don't, um, don't kill one myself. It's like, I just want to be there to experience. Yeah. You want to tag along. Yeah. yeah. I was hunting elk in the breaks last year with Ben O'Brien and, uh, we get up on this little glassing tit and we're in glass and we spot some sheep. I stared at those sheep for, Freaking like an hour and a half. Ben's like, should we go find some milk? I'm like, no, no, shut up. I'm looking at sheep. <laughs> like, no, I'm watching like, Rams right like, now. Like, leave me alone. I'm in the man. zone. Leave me alone. <laughs> He's like, well, can I have my spotting scope? I'm like, no, no, get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> like pushing away. And uh, I don't know, man. There's just something about the animals. They're just so, so cool. It's romanticized for you. 100%. And like, I don't know, Jack O'Connor reading his writings and stuff. It's like there's sheep hunters and then there's everybody else. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's like they're their own breed. Mm -hmm. And I feel pretty fortunate to be going on a mountain goat hunt this, this year with Bryce uh, because it's that same kind of adventure mountain hunting, but mountain goats don't really do it for me. Mm -hmm. Like they don't have that same allure, but I'm glad I get to go experience that, you know, super high country stuff and and hunt kind of like I'd be hunting sheep. But when's um, that going to be first week of October? So we're going to try and get it on when he wants to do it. There'll be a little more furred up, but hopefully not so much snow that uh, we have a terribly hard time getting into into the zone. Yeah, into the so, areas. Yeah. yeah. So they get up there pretty high, man. Like, I guess lots of people say it's like if you're uh, hunting for goats and you see sheep, look up mm-hmm. <laughs> type of thing. So they just live in those nasty, craggy spires and it's crazy that they can navigate those cliff faces and stuff. But so they're really cool in that aspect. They're just a, a phenomenal animal there, but I'm just so enamored with the sheep. I'm just on the sheep train. Yeah. It's like, it's like when I draw a mountain goat tag, I'll be stoked about it. Or if I ever draw one, I should say, but if I ever draw a big horn tag in Montana, I will like 
lose my mind. I'll jump for joy. I'll never be in my house. I'll be scouting freaking from the second I get the tag until the, the time I pull the trigger. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Will this be? Dude, it's a different world when you get out there and you're chasing yeah. sheep, man. Well, yeah. I mean, you've gotten to, are you gone on, on a, nine hunts in a year? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Gone on a few. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, but I got the bug. Yeah. You know, I totally 100% got the bug, started going to sheep show and um, various dinners and stuff like that. And, you know, watching what I had seen of sheep and, and sheep hunting and the experience, the adventure that is also along the, the journey of, you know, pulling the trigger and, yep. and killing sheep. And that was really what drew me in and sucked me in and just watching these like amazing hunts and adventures and the whole process from getting there to, you know, going up the drainage or wherever it was and, yeah, dude. you know, spotting it, stalking in on it and then taking the shot and hundred percent just mind blowing to me. Dude, it really is. It's, it's so cool. And honestly, one thing that like really stuck out in my mind when I first met you, um, like we were in that stone glacier parking lot and mm-hmm. And you're doing the flip flop and serving me pieces, and I'm just like, yeah, give me more, <laughs> yeah, give me more. Just keep feeding me. <laughs> you have that, you have that like unsaid rule or unspoken rule of like you have to be within three feet of the of, of the, the barbecue, to, yeah, to get a piece of meat. So I'm just like, keep scooching in closer. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, give me some, give me some. But like we were talking there, and uh, I asked you what uh, the best game you've done the flip flop with, and yeah. you were just like nonchalantly like, yeah, bighorn sheep, or you said desert bighorn sheep. And just like threw it out there casually and like kind of kept serving people. And I was just like, it's like, what the fuck? Like, did you just say desert bighorn sheep? Like, is this guy that casual about killing sheep that he's like, oh yeah, yeah. Just, you know, throw a desert bighorn leg on the grill here and uh, do a flip flop with it. Yeah. But I was just like, so enamored at that point. I was like, obviously he knows what's up. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that was actually the, so the first time was the first time I had done desert bighorn was maybe a couple of weeks right before we did that event. Yeah. And, uh, we had gone out on a hunt and we had one hunter in camp. And I want to say there's the hunter and his three buddies and, um, camera crew, Seacat creative was a camera crew that was there. And then, you know, four or five guides and we went out and got it done. And the hunter was just like, he had heard what I do and, and all that kind of stuff. And, He'd listened to the podcast previous to that, and uh, his name's Mike. It's just the greatest guy on planet Earth. He's so awesome. He's just like he's just so epic. I I can't even describe like his character in words. You know, he's just yeah. so great. And uh, he kills his he kills his ram, and it was a tank. It's like one seventy three tank, <laughs> just just a monster. And um, dude, a one seventy three on a desert too just yeah. looks so huge. Yeah. It's just so huge. They're like little tiny necks and yeah, stuff. Little, tiny just body. massive horns yeah. on them. He's yeah. like, how do you carry that around? Studs, <laughs> yeah. for sure. Sorry, uh, but he, he killed that sheep. Yeah, he killed it, and he cut the back leg off it, and he's like, we're cooking this in camp tonight. And, and he, like, hell yes. <laughs> and he ended up, what he did, I'm pretty sure he called like five or six friends, and they drove down, you know, four or five hours or seven hours, whatever it was. They drove all the way to camp to be there for the flip flop and when everybody got to eat. So it was, it was quite an event an event and Dude, that's so really cool. fun time. Amazing experience. Everybody loved it. Obviously. Um, <laughs> I haven't met anybody who hasn't loved yeah, it. Like, I know. 
Like every time. I just every like, time like I'm always talking to people like I've done a couple now. Yeah. And they're like, "Oh, this is so good." And I'm like, "It isn't half as good as when Andy does it." Like I'm like It's a learned process, man. It is. You get there. One of these days. One of you these get days, there. Keep keeping hind quarters and I'll just freaking slap them on the grill. And... Yeah. Yeah, but uh so that was how I ended up doing my first desert sheep lake. Yeah. Um, so you you said it so nonchalantly and it was you've only done one before that yeah oh my gosh yeah but it was the best yeah. i'd had oh, you asked you go, me what yeah. the best was and it's just like desert yeah. cheap and no and like the second you said that i was just like so enamored i was like yep i gotta be friends with this guy <laughs> i was like girl this guy's fucking crazy i was like we're on the same page here like 100 yeah. percent. oh yeah and uh i was just like yep there we go yeah there we go we need to figure out how we can go on a sheep hunt together let's do it or at least back to kyrgyzstan and shoot some ibex let's do that too yeah let's do both let's do both let's yeah. just keep let's just travel let's go to kyrgyzstan and... next september all right if, if i mean if you're in i'm in i'm doing it we can get it set up yep i just got a couple more guys i'm waiting on to say that they're in and we'll get we'll get it dialed and go. yeah go have a good time dude i want to go so bad that just sounds like such a crazy adventure it is because I don't know, Ibex kind of give me that same sheep allure in a way. They're in the in the same kind of country. Yeah, same type of country. It's fucked. And they just have massive, massive horns on their heads. Yeah. Just like, they're what? such a beautiful like, species, man. Yeah. They're such so a cool. beautiful species, dude. Super. Looking at your photos and stuff from that hunt, man, just I was like, that is so cool. Yeah. So, so cool. Yeah. Well, we were lucky to have an excellent photographer yeah. with us. That kind of helped. Yeah. So it wasn't all phone photos. Yeah. Hey, phone photos work too, especially yeah. with these new phones today. Yeah, they're pretty good. Like so many of our uh, contributors for the magazines take their pictures on their phone. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, all right, that works. I mean, definitely sometimes we're like, yeah, that's not going to work. Like you could totally tell that's a phone <laughs> photo. Like let's cut that one out. But yeah, uh, but yeah like, <clears throat> they'll take good enough quality photos for, for magazine stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, not like cover quality, but for, you know, supplemental images in an article. Yeah. Yeah. They work. They work pretty well. Oh, that's right. Can you tell me about that top deer you got sitting on your little stand here? Yeah. Because um, I don't know if I know that story. And I keep looking at it. I guess. God bless Whoa. you. That was that one that was supposed to come out yesterday, yesterday that never the, did. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He's a cool buck, huh? He is cool. Yeah. And if you look back here, he had a a seven inch drop tine that came off of his, uh, his, what's that? His right side. Yeah. Yeah. So that buck, good story. Um, that buck we found in, and he was running with another buck. It was a six by six and, uh, it's probably 32 inches wide. So he's the smaller of the two. Um, six by and six, he's like right around 28, like maybe 28 and a quarter. I can't remember exactly what it was, yeah. <clears throat> but, uh, yeah, it was a typical too. Jeez. It wasn't, there was no cheaters or anything. Um, so we ended up finding these bucks in archery season last year and we chased them all through the entirety of archery and never could get on them. And I, you know, I mean, out where, where we hunt, anytime I see another hunter on the road, I'll stop and talk to him. And oh, I had actually, I'd actually heard stories about this buck, not only from us, but from other people. Cause there's say there's seven or eight people in our camp. What time is it? Oh, we're good. Just six. Okay. Um, there's seven or eight people in our camp and everybody's seen these two bucks. 
<clears throat> so everybody in our camp is going after these two bucks. Yeah. Which is like, cool. That's fine. I, I'm excited for whoever gets the shot. Definitely. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. that's where I'm at. And <clears throat> so we go through all the archery season. I think one guy got two opportunities with his bow. And um, I can't remember exactly what happened, but. Like shots fired type of opportunities or? Drawback. Gotcha. Almost shots fired. Maybe one arrow was flung, but like, you know. Yeah. In there. Still on a buck that caliber too. In the wheelhouse. In California. California, yeah. Yeah. Giant California deer. Yeah. Um, And uh, so. Just being able to draw back, that's a cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, and, and. Because pot's legal in California, I'll tell the full version of this story. <clears throat> so I ended up going back up for rifle season. And California's just always laid with smoke the last four years or whatever. Right. So I'm out there hunting and, you know, I'd killed a small little fork and horn with my, uh, with my bow earlier, you know, earlier in August. And uh, go up opening weekend. No luck. You know, again, I mean, it was the entire, I, I hunted the entire length of archery season <clears throat> and only had ended up shooting that one small buck and, uh, a week or a week and a half into the season, the rainstorm is coming. Well, I knew it was my last year in California and growing pot in California is legal. I don't smoke pot. I've been sober for 16 years. Right. Um, so I was like, man, I've always had this, I'm all about bucket list things, right? And I was like, well, before I leave California, I want to grow some pot plants. So I grew, uh, it was six plants in my backyard and, and watched them grow and, you know, do the whole process. Amazing thing to watch happen. Like just absolutely unreal. Um, so anyways, a rainstorm was coming in and, you know, when you have 13 foot tall trees in your backyard, you know, and, you know, colas that are monsters and you know the whole deal like you got to worry when water gets in them and they get wet they're going to be too heavy for the branch and then they're going to fall over and they're going to break oh but because they're so saturated with water you know you're going to get mold and mildew and all kinds of problems inside them if you try to dry them out right so with this rainstorm coming in i panicked i drove all the way home and i spent literally like 24 hour, not 24 hours, but like 14 hours straight, cut everything down, manicured everything, hung everything up in my garage to dry before the rainstorm hit and, um, turned around, woke up the next morning and drove back up. Jeez. Yeah. It's kind of crazy. Uh, the rainstorm never hit by the way. So I oh, good. cut so, my, cut my growth by two weeks, which probably could have anyways, <laughs> uh, anyways, anyways, um, and got back up to the cabin, had lunch, and then took back off and went out on a hunt. And I was three and a half, four hours into my hunt. Um, it was maybe like an hour or an hour and a half left of mm-hmm. daylight. And I was finishing my, I've got this really nice hunt that I like to do. And uh, went up along the ridge line and was coming back down, you know, towards the creek, towards towards the road and towards the truck. And, uh, you know, and it's in the section where these deer were and I'm walking down this little old logging dragon out steps this buck 
and some jack pines and i don't even know that it's that deer and you know we're 60 yards apart Mm -hmm. and i had a savage 99 threw it up boom plugged him he went down within 10 feet and unfortunately the other buck jumped up out of its bed just like (laughs) ran away yeah and and that was the bigger one you know but i had notched both my tags so i was tagged out for california and and uh walked up and didn't know that it was the drop tine buck until i picked up the head and started looking at the antlers and everything like that and Mm -hmm. you know saw that his tine had been broken off. off and i was like beside myself i looked yeah. everywhere like, where, where he had it? fallen and like thought that it had just broken off and i started looking at the actual break and it was pretty old yeah i mean not pretty old but maybe a older. week or so yeah it was yeah. older there's dirt and shit built in it um and uh yeah that was the that was the story of that guy that's pretty cool yeah it was a fun yeah that's a lot i mean that was a lot of energy and effort that went in on those two deer by a lot by you know by eight people and talking to road hunters and you know hearing the road hunters that would see them off the side of the road and miss a shot yeah you know i think that's how the antler ended up that's how the tine ended up getting broke off i think someone took a shot at him and and missed and uh hit his antler and just blew it off went off into the distance somewhere but he's a cool buck he's He's my biggest california buck yeah he's a really cool buck yeah i mean that's you know just that's like i said you know i always say this like you know for for us when we hunt you know like you know like i said we usually have like eight people in camp Mm -hmm. and everybody's hunting different spots until we find bucks and then we kind of all focus figure out where the bucks are and then yeah. and then head there which is really beneficial and yeah, we're cool. usually spending time up there from you know mid-april may all the way up until after hunting season closes so yeah have a fairly good bead on where the deer are at and the amount of time sure. we're putting into the into the forest and all that so uh super lucky that's pretty sweet yeah that's cool. You know, yeah. that uh, that blacktail I killed in California just a few weeks back? Yeah. That was my first deer I ever killed in California. Was it really? Yep. As a resident? Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, non-resident as a, as a now, non-resident, But, yeah. like, you were a resident. Yeah, I lived there my and whole left. life. Yeah. And then left, and then went back and killed a deer. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was a beautiful buck, too. Dude, that was, that was really cool. Yeah. That was different. And you'd think that, like, hunting in a vineyard would be easy. Mm-hmm. It's not easy. Mm-mm. It's like it's not physically demanding because like a lot of it's just driving around. It's complicated and there's bushes everywhere. Yeah, it's super complicated. Yeah. It's like you get this 10-foot um, width of this row mm-hmm. and it's like if a deer's there, there's a deer there. And like as soon as they cross a row, they're like gone forever. Yeah. It's like you're not just going to run over to the next row and find them again. It's yeah. like they move through Unless that. you're on like a high rack. Yeah. Just, and even that might be difficult. Yeah, I don't know. Even then, like – just the way that vineyard lays there's a couple spots where you can maybe see into the next row over mm-hmm. but i don't even know a high rack would like help at all help at all yeah. yeah might not it was it was so different and you get a nasty kink in your neck from just like looking back and forth down rows yeah just like like where, where are these deer but it, it ended up being pretty cool and it was it was actually the first animal i shot off of sticks too oh cool yeah. i shoot most everything off of sticks yeah yeah. Yeah, I just like had never done it. Like all my hunting experience was like, all right, there's there's a deer like especially hunting with a rifle. It's like 
lay a pack down, get prone, yeah. and take my shot. Yeah, this this ibex hunt was probably the first hunt in five years that I didn't have sticks with me. Really? And I don't know how I fucked that one up because it cost me the biggest ibex on the fucking mountain. Yeah. But uh, yeah. 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 So you felt naked without your sticks up there? Just no, like, I didn't. I mean, I feel pretty comfortable shooting off a pack, but yeah. I know my stability off of my sticks is... That's, that's where you're at. Yeah. You, you like You it. just cannot... I can't... Do you usually sit, shoot sitting down on your sticks or like standing up? It sticks? depends. No, they're not. I never have shot standing on okay. sticks. I'm always either on my knees or prone. Gotcha. Okay. You know? But yep. yeah, that was... That was a that yeah. was a big yeah that that buck in California was standing up on sticks like kind of Africa oh, really? style yeah yeah and uh, I was so unstable there was like a twenty mile an hour wind it was like a hundred or a hundred and sixty seven yards I think was the shot mm-hmm. so not a far shot but I was like I pulled up on him and there was actually another deer there a really really big forky just just huge two point yeah beautiful yeah. I saw that one and. Uh, I was kind of debating between the two, and I definitely had – there was no question. I was like, yeah, I'm going to shoot that one. Yeah. Um, but I, like, pull up on it, and I'm trying to get stable on those sticks and never practicing standing up and stuff. I was just like, oh, wow, there's a lot of rifle movement happening. Like, there's a lot of scope movement here. That's why I don't like standing sticks. Yeah. Was it on, like, a tripod? Yeah, <clears throat> tripod sticks. Like, yeah. Just that uh, – pretty much that Africa style, just wooden sticks with a little piece of rubber in the middle of them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, basically like what I resorted to is my archery shooting. Mm-hmm. I was like, all right, I know how to deal with like this constant with a motion. Float. Yep. Yeah. I was like, settle your breath, settle your breathing, settle in, let it float, let it float, let it float, let that float get less a little bit smaller and just squeeze through your shot Yeah. and ended up smoking them. So yeah. I was like, but like every time the breeze would move me, I was just like, geez, <laughs> like moving back and forth. And actually, Ryan Newkirk, the the guy there at Steinbeck. Um, Ryan's great. Great guy. He actually told me after the fact, which I wish he would have told me beforehand. Because, like, immediately, my um, just instinctual process to get on those sticks was, like, put my left foot forward and just, like, lean into him. Mm-hmm. Where he was like, it's going to be way better next time. It's like, square your stance up. Like, stand completely square to the yeah. sticks. And I was like, that you, you should have just yelled at me right then and there to do that. Square up! Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever done any like battle rifle training or anything like that? No, not any like um, formal training. I've that's how I was around with it, but going through uh, different rifle training for a carbine. I, that's how I was always oh, taught cool. with a carbine was you know square up. Yeah. On your rifle. Yeah. Instead of the side stance. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely helps. It definitely helps. It gives you a much more stable platform, and I think especially in that crosswind situation. Mm-hmm. Like, cause putting my left foot forward, I was just, you know, opening up my, my chest to being pushed around by that wind, Yeah. you know, instead of staying, uh, squared up to the sand, bless you. Thank you. Instead of, uh, being squared up, bless you, man, you allergic Fire. to No, <laughs> but no, like, um, when you square up, the wind has so much less effect on the side of your body. So mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Made made a lot of sense. Yeah. Like, oh, well, thanks, Ryan. Thanks for telling me that before or <laughs> after the shot. It's like, thanks, buddy. Appreciate it. Just had to go through the most nerve-wracking 20 seconds of my life. <laughs> uh-huh. And then, so you're heading out tonight. Yeah, I think I'm going to either – it might be tomorrow morning now. Oh, but, okay. Uh, 
I'll get up early tomorrow morning and, and head out and see if I could find a screaming forest horse. There you go. How also, do you feel about that? Also known as elk. Yeah. Man, I absolutely love elk hunting, like I said earlier, but uh, I, the, the past few years, I haven't been able to dedicate enough time to really spend in, um, or to, to getting out in the field. And it's been kind of detrimental because, you know, like I, I spent weekends here and there, you know, I had day hunts here and there, but with elk it's like you need to hunt a spot for a few days to really get into them and like understand what's going on in the area and like find your kind of like uh, just find your groove mm -hmm. and i just didn't get to do that so like i'm i'm feeling pretty fortunate that i'm being able to spend a few more days out there this year and like really just kind of get into it and i think next week i'm going to take uh, about five days and, and go and just focus on elk yeah so It'll be fun because I always equate it to just like starting over. It's not like, it's not like, um, hunting something else. It's like, yeah, you could hunt whitetail and have them patterned and stuff and you could, you know, skip a day here and there. But I feel like when you skip a day elk hunting or like, you know, have a few days between your hunts, you're just missing out on so much. You're like, I feel like you're always starting over from ground zero. Yeah. You're just like back there. Yeah. So I feel really good about it going out there again. going to go spend a couple days now and. Um, then next week I'll, I'll spend a little bit longer of a stretch. Nice. I don't think they're really going off quite yet. Yeah. So they're bugling here and there and some guys are getting into them and I don't think the full running activity is taking off yet. So I think probably about this week or, or this next week, um, more towards the end good. of September. Yeah. Yeah. I usually have really good luck getting into them just going crazy in the, like halfway through the third week. Yeah. Yeah. And then in my experience in idaho at least yeah but then they just go crazy and I, yeah i love it dude when you get a big <laughs> screaming bull just like coming in like you just feel that in your soul yeah just like rattling you yeah yeah dude, the the bull i ended up losing it was one of the coolest experiences of my life i got um i got to watch that bull actually fight two other bulls really and just run them into the ground and take their harem whoa and then they started the whole harem and that bull started working towards me with a couple of satellite bulls around him. And, uh, they're just moving towards me. And I, I had probably 120 elk just like all around me. It was the weirdest things. It was like the, the gates of heaven opened up <laughs> like elk flowing through to me. And like, dude, there were a couple of just Stompers. monster mule deer in there too. Really? Like just kind of following along with yeah. her. Like what is going on here? But, uh, I was kind of nestled down like against this big deadfall log and uh, this herd was just kind of moving through like 12 yards from me, like mm -hmm. all these elk 12 yards from me. Some are going behind me. And I found that uh, when you get like inside the herd like that, when you have elk on all sides of you, it's almost like they don't care. It's like they let their guard down. Yeah. It's like they may smell you, but they're like, oh, no, that's like nothing's within our bubble. Like we're totally fine. Like they're really cautious, like looking out on the outskirts of the herd and stuff. But like once you're in the middle of them, it seems like they just get comfortable and like completely anecdotal. And I could be spewing a bunch of bullshit right now, Yeah. but that's just kind of that experience I had. Like, I was like, they have to be busting me. Like they have to be smelling me right now. Like I know my wind is going to some of these elk, but regardless, they're moving like all around me and, uh, the bull that had won in these fights. It's kind of on this little bench at 30 yards just up above the, the harem. Mm -hmm. And he's moving through, and the sun's kind of setting. 
and he comes out between these like new growth trees and he just sticks his head out and he was a really pretty seven point really just sticks his oh, head that's out rough kicks his head back and just screams his brain out like the most deep-throated bugle i've ever heard mm-hmm. and i immediately went from like calm and composed to just like vigorously shaking just like i was like oh there's the adrenaline dump found yeah. it and uh i didn't have a shot at him right there which i would have loved to have shot him but i just didn't have a good good look at his vitals and this was actually in october so talking about rutting activity being a little later mm-hmm. uh he kind of moves off through the trees and i'm kind of going oh man i don't think i'm gonna get a shot but there was another good six point bull satellite bull following along with the herd. And I'm like, he's going to come right next to me at 12 yards and I'm going to shoot him. And, uh, I'm getting ready to shoot him. And, uh, the guy with me like taps me on the shoulder. He's like, draw your bow to the right. Cause he's watching the big bull the whole time. And I kind of just kind of wiped him out of my memory. I was like, I'm going to focus on killing this bull. Like, it's a good six point bull. I don't need to get greedy. Mm-hmm. And he goes, draw your bow draw your bow to the right so i'm i'm facing like with my right side up against this deadfall log facing uphill so i draw my bow and like spin downhill at the same time and i look over and the bulls freaking just posted up just like perfect quartering away looking back at me i was like oh shit like there it is and he gives me the range he's like 62 and i'm like 60 yard shot like i practice that all day long like i'm i'm good here we're good freaking settle just like breathe through my shot my pins just like holding perfect right where i want to hit him he's quartering away pretty hard so i was like holding like um <clears throat> like third rib from the back because mm-hmm. i was just like picturing it just going where it's right gonna come there out and hit that yeah. opposite front shoulder yeah i'm just like yep let it go and i'm just like that was it like that was the shot right there and it hits him and we're like it looked good and the arrow just kind of disappears and we're like dead bull like 100 percent. we were both like hugging and high-fiving and just i was losing my mind i was like let's kill the giant bull just like rolling on the ground like yeah. losing it and uh <clears throat> ended up like we go and search for blood a little bit like we were giving them some time and go and search for blood and like there was a lot of elk so we were having a hard time finding blood we were like oh he's dead and, you know just can't find blood because there were a hundred and hundred plus elk running through here tearing up the ground and uh never really found blood we found a couple of specks like way up the hill and we're like that seems weird really weird because like he should be just pouring blood yeah and uh never ended up finding him that night and we went back the next day and uh kept looking kept looking and just nothing like couldn't turn up anything and we ended up finding blood like three miles away from where i shot him and we're like what the hell is going on and actually the next day we ended up putting eyes on him again. He's running around freaking breeding cows and like bugling his face off. Yeah. Having a good old day. Yeah. It's like it never even phased him. And like we get really close to him and see, and we could see where the arrow was legitimately on the same side of the bull. Mm-hmm. Like just hit a rib deflected and, and went straight forward across the skin. Yeah. I was just like, what? Rough. And dude. I mean like those specks of blood we were fine. Like they were specks. They were just absolute specks of blood. But uh, it goes to show just how freaking tough those animals are to kill, man. Yeah. <clears throat> like those other two bulls that he fought beforehand, like one of them kind of like came limping towards us. And I mean, it was just 
gushing blood out of his face. Just, I mean, just torn up, puncture wounds on his shoulders and stuff. Beat up. Yeah, I was just like, oh, my God. The stuff they do to each other, it's like, look at the weapons they have on yeah. their head. And yeah. it's like, everybody's like, oh, yeah, you know, if my shot's a little off, it's fine. It's like, no, it has to be pretty perfect. Like, they stab each other frequently, and yeah. they're fine. Yeah. So. They destroy each other. It's crazy. And it's like, you know, it's so funny. It's like they're all in these bachelor groups before the rut kicks in and then just go crazy and just start beating the absolute piss out of each other. Like that. It's a whole lot of animal to watch hit each other too. Dude, they were running over trees. Like it was the craziest thing I've ever witnessed. It's still one of the coolest hunts I've ever had. I just wish the outcome was a little different, but just that experience of being just covered up in elk. I was just like, like, that's cool. Yeah. Lots of wind right there. But like I said earlier, that has made me so, so picky about my setup, about my shot process, about my, my, um, uh, decision to take a shot. It's like, I am so picky on the shot angles and stuff now. It's yeah. like, that's not happening again. It's like, I'm not, uh, definitely not going to let that happen. So I'm very picky. I'm like, I'm only going to take a shot. I know that bull's going to die. Mm-hmm. So. Right on, man. Another rabbit hole for you. Sorry. Yeah. Just no, you're good. Dude. That's good. That's good. We'll, we'll Ooh. wrap it up there. I know you, you know, we got 15 minutes left, so yeah, we'll wrap it up there and awesome, man. Thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it so dude, much. Of course. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. I just, I love chatting with you. So anytime you want to sit down and just talk, yeah. I'm, I'm game for it. Yeah, man. Absolutely. And Hey, thank you for being my savior from the airport. When I landed back from Kyrgyzstan after anytime, over 30 some odd hours of travel. Yeah, anytime. When you, when you text me, you're like, I'm going to try and get an Uber. I was like, dude, don't worry about that. Like, don't even try. It's like, I know you've just yeah. been through hell. Like I'm going to come get you. I'll take you home. No yeah. big deal at all. Yeah. Like, well, I appreciate it. Feel free to call me anytime. Well, if I'm, if I'm in town, I'll pick you up yeah. from the airport. So. I appreciate it, man. Thank you oh, so yeah, much. Man. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into the show, folks. If you'd like to check us out online, our website is www.theflipflopguide.co. You can find out all the information you need to have your own flip-flop in your own backyard. We encourage this, and we'd love to see this happening in every backyard across America. You can purchase our sauces that have been cranking out flip-flops from my grandfather since the 1960s. If you had trouble filling your tags this year, we also have available on our website Maui Nui Axis Deer Legs. They're 100% USDA approved and ready for your consumption. Don't forget to check us out on Instagram at the flip flop guy. We hope you have a great day. Thanks for tuning in and don't forget to smash that subscribe button.